live. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the second annual Fetty Night Festivus, brought to you by the Federalist Society Student Division and the Columbus School of Law Student Chapter at the Catholic University of America. My name is Tabitha Kemp. Um, I'm the president of the FedSoc Student Chapter at the Columbus School of Law. I'm thrilled to introduce our guest speaker for the evening, Professor Josh Blackman. Um, but before I do that, I'll briefly discuss tonight's format for those of you who are with us for the first time. Professor Blackman will spend the first part of the evening airing his legal grievances. When he concludes, we'll open up the floor for audience questions. And grievances. <laughs> and grievances. To participate in the discussion, you'll need to register as a, a Zoom participant. To ask a question, you can use the raise hand function on your laptop or dial star nine um, if you've joined by phone. When we get to your question, Professor Blackman will call on you by name and our host will unmute your microphone. When you're called on, please uh, restate your name and your affiliation before asking your question. Um, and then alternatively, you can also utilize the Zoom chat function to submit a question. So with that, let me introduce our distinguished speaker this evening. Professor Josh Blackman is a national thought leader on constitutional law in the United States Supreme Court. Josh's work was quoted during two presidential impeachment trials. He has testified before Congress and advises federal and state lawmakers. Josh regularly appears on TV, including NBC, CBS, ABC, Fox, and the BBC. Josh is also a frequent guest on NPR and other syndicated radio programs. He has published commentaries in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, and leading national publications. Since 2012, Josh has served as a professor at the South Texas College of Law, Houston. Josh is also an adjunct professor at the Cato Institute. Josh has authored three books. His latest, An Introduction to Constitutional Law, was a top five bestseller on Amazon. Josh has written more than five dozen law review articles that have been cited nearly a thousand times. He was selected by Forbes magazine by the, uh, for 30 under 30 in law and policy. Josh is president of the Harlan Institute and he founded Fantasy SCOTUS, the internet's premier Supreme Court fantasy league. He also blogs at the Volok Conspiracy and tweets at, at Josh M. Blackman. And now the tradition of Fetty Night Festivus begins with the airing of legal grievances by Professor Blackman followed by feats of jurisprudential strength via Q&A. As a reminder, Festivus is not over until someone pins Professor Blackman or until we reach 9.30. So with that, Professor Blackman, the floor is yours. A very happy Festivus to you all. We are going to have some fun tonight. Um, many of you may actually not know what Festivus is. Uh, Festivus came from a show called Seinfeld. Uh, the episode aired in 1997. I realized when many 1Ls were, at the time, were perhaps signing alive, uh, maybe at a fetal heartbeat, unsure. Uh, but the, the premise of this show is that George Costanza's father, uh, Frank Costanza, created an alternate holiday to Festivus. I'm sorry, an alternate holiday to Christmas called Festivus. He was upset with all the commercialization. Instead of having a Christmas tree, there was a solid aluminum pole. And instead of spreading well wishes, you air your grievances. And instead of sharing warm hugs, you would share feats of strength. Um, it's a very good episode, but perhaps my favorite line, which summarizes much of what I'll do tonight, was this one. I've got a lot of problems with you people, and now you're going to hear about it. So my goal here tonight is to let you hear about all my many grievances. If you follow my blog and you read me on Twitter, you know I do not hold back. 
The theme of this evening is Blackman versus everybody. And I think I will cover just about everyone, or at least those who really give me airs of grievances. We have to begin, of course, with two else. Chief Justice John Roberts, um, who's been on the bench now for about 15 years and consistently disappoints, confounds, infuriates, vexes me. Um, the first big decision, of course, was in 2012 with the Obamacare case that the mandate was not actually a regulation of commerce, but was simply a tax the uninsured. Once again, the chief decided to make something up and get creative in order to avoid the court being seen as unpopular. We saw it more recently during the Trump years with the DACA decision, the census decision, where entire new bodies of admin law were made up for the purpose of making the court look neutral. But thankfully, Roberts is no longer the fifth vote. The real chief justice this moment is this guy, uh, Clarence Thomas. You know, I tried very hard to think of things I have a grievance with Justice Thomas, and I couldn't think of anything. It's pretty, it's pretty close to thumbs up. Uh, perhaps my only small grievance with Justice Thomas is that he took so long to start asking questions or arguments. Um, for the longest time, he would be silent for more or less two decades. And recently, since the court went on remote arguments, he's been asking questions a lot. And now he gets the first question every case. Um, Justice Thomas, keep exhibiting your jurisprudential feats of strength year after year, case after case. Push us, challenge us, and make us reconsider everything as a matter of first principles. The next justice, though, is not so happy. Of course, Stephen Breyer. Um, this man is assailed. There are buses that go around DC blasting retire Breyer. Um, virtually everyone on the left wants this guy to just get lost. Um, maybe they'll make him the ambassador to the court of St. James, or perhaps they'll make him the czar of administrative law. I don't know. By the way, his boss, Justice Goldberg, took one of those gigs. It did not work out well for him. Um, but Justice Breyer has been around. I find him endearing. His questions are long, confusing, and very often he'll say, it's okay if you don't answer the question because you didn't remember what the question was. With Breyer, you have to remember, he's simply thinking out loud. He's not actually asking questions the way you and I would ask a question, um, sort of like a soliloquy in the, in the Shakespearean sense. He's just sort of wondering aloud what ought to be. But Justice Breyer is under attack from the left, but I think he's going to stick around maybe for a couple more years. Justice Samuel Alito, um, another justice I have a hard time criticizing because I think he's pretty good. Uh, but his demeanor at the State of the Union was probably not the best idea. Maybe about a decade ago, you recall, President Obama was giving a State of the Union address. He criticized the Citizens United case, and Alito was saying, not true. not true. He was mouthing it. Not the best look. And I don't think Alito's been back to the State of the Union since then. Um, the next justice I do have some grievances with, um, Justice Sotomayor. Um, I think she's gone IDGAF. Uh, if you don't know what that is, Google it. I won't say because Peter's on the line. Um, I think she has zero Fs left to give, so to speak. I think she simply realized that she's going to dissent for a while, and she's not even trying to make friends anymore, and not even trying to be nice. I think we saw this most recently in the Dobbs case. This was the challenge to Mississippi's 15-week abortion ban. And she had this obviously rehearsed line. She said, will this institution survive the stench that this creates in the public perception that the Constitution and it's reading are just public are just political acts. I'm sorry. If you're trying to make the courts less partisan, don't say things like this. Sotomayor reminds me of the arsonist 
who sees her house on fire. And she responds by pouring kerosene on the house. Really, if you're trying to make the court's most partisan, stop making lines for The Daily Show, right? Stop trying to speak up for the cameras. You are the reason why I don't want cameras in the courtroom. You, Sotomayor. I think she would make it a devastating monologue, right? If you want to have a talk show, find other employment. Biden will be happy to replace you. Um, but I think really these sorts of comments make things worse. And this sort of self moaning and, and you know, this, this, this self-press, oh my God, what's going to happen? You're making it happen. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy, okay? The next justice I kind of feel bad for, Elena Kagan. She had it going on for about a year or so, right? So after Justice Kennedy retired, Chief Justice Roberts became the swing vote. And in case after case, it became obvious that Kay was willing to throw her vote and try and cobble together some majority, any majority, to keep the court from going too far to the left. Uh, for a time, I called her Chief Justice Kagan. I thought she was doing the Dean thing in the Supreme Court. She was really bringing people together. I thought she was quite good at it too. Uh, but then Roberts wasn't the swing vote anymore. After um, Justice um, uh, Ginsburg's passing, we'll get to Barrett in a minute, uh, Roberts became the fourth vote, not the fifth vote. And Kagan sort of back and forth lost its potency. But I think she's still working on stuff. She was very quiet during the abortion arguments. She's keeping her powder dry. I don't know quite what she's doing, but I, I do feel that her, her kind of strategy pettered out. All right, next up we have Justice Gorsuch. Oh, remember, but Gorsuch, right? Oh, Trump, but Gorsuch, right? Remember that, how things are awful at Trump, at least we have Gorsuch out of it. And I think for the most part, we'll be happy. We got the double whammy in 2020 of Bostock and McGirt, back to back. Who knew that the Civil Rights Act of 68 codified the HR policy of land illegal? Who knew? And really, did Oklahoma need Tulsa? They got all these other cities. They don't really need the, the, the entire part of the state. It's necessary. Um, but Gorsuch has been, I think, pretty solid on some of the free exercise cases. We'll, we'll forgive him, I think. Um, the next justice, I don't know. Um, <laughs> Justice Kavanaugh, where do I begin? Um, he wasn't first on my list, wasn't second, wasn't third, wasn't fourth, uh, but we're stuck with him for a few decades. So uh, we may as well make the best of things. Um, I don't like beer, actually don't even drink, uh, but I do like his Calvary Chapel descent. Um, I don't like this 333 court, but I do appreciate the fact that he didn't make stuff up in the SBA case. He said, you can't sue clerks and you can't sue judges. That was a good ruling. Um, I'm going to reserve my judgment of Kavanaugh for at least eh, six more months. Let's see what happens in July. Lots of things can shift. Um, let's stay vigilant, my friends. Um, the newest member of the court, Justice Amy Coney Barrett, she made it from law professor to Supreme Court justice in just about three years, which is stunning if you think about it. Um, she was a circuit judge for about 15 seconds. And before you know it, you know, she finds her way to the Rose Garden, cough, cough, and then she's in the Supreme Court. Um, but still, we have some grounds for concern. She spent her career as a con law professor, yet she apparently never considered an employment division for Smith. It's just this, this mythical precedent with all these unknown questions that could have never been answered before. Um, and her boss wrote the majority opinion, Scalia. So I think the verdict on the glorious ACB is still out. Um, come at me in July. We'll see where we are. Um, I'll be remiss if we don't mention our senior associate justices. Uh, Justice Sandra Day O'Connor, she's not well, but we'll still talk about her. Um, she had some good opinions. South Dakota v. Dole, good. 
Gonzales uh, Rage for Dissent, good. Bad, Hawaii Housing Authority versus Midkiff. This was a case that read the eminent domain power to be very broad. Terrible decision. But she sort of made up for it in Kilo, where she sort of said, nah, I didn't really mean that stuff in Midkiff. But we, we know what she meant. Uh, our next senior associate justice, Justice Anthony Kennedy. Um, I am grateful that he retired, and not for reasons you may think. His opinions were terrible as to teach. Dreadful. Um, they made no sense. They're incoherent. Casey, Romer, Lawrence, Windsor, Bergefell. These opinions were very hard to follow. There was no test. There was no doctrine. It was just like a freshman philosophy paper uh, that someone made into these reports. Um, I have to quote Justice Scalia from Bergefell. The Supreme Court of the United States has descended from the disciplined legal reasoning of John Marshall and Joseph Story to the mystical aphorisms of the fortune cookie. I'm looking at you, Tony, fortune cookies. That's what we got. The next senior associate justice, who is this guy? Oh, oh yeah, Souter. You know, it was hard for me to think of anything he actually did. Uh, he was fairly inconsequential, perhaps the most inconsequential justice of the modern era. He came onto the court and got as quickly as he, as he could. And indeed his papers, right? His Supreme Court papers are sealed for 50 years after his death. There may not be anyone in this call who ever actually sees these papers because he's in fairly good health. Um, so maybe my, my, my children will see it one day uh, when they're, they're in college, but no one will actually care because it's suitor. Um, that's the modern era. Let's go back, way back, way, way back. Yes, George, I'm looking at you. Um, why am I mad at George Washington? The Bank of the United States. Um, he could have vetoed it. He signed it. You have advisors. You have James Madison and uh, Thomas Jefferson saying that, no, the enumerated powers should not let you charter a bank. But then you have Hamilton. No, that's not Hamilton. This is Hamilton, who said, you can do it. And Hamilton won out. And Washington had the Bank of the United States. And that was basically the beginning of the end for enumerated powers doctrine. My next grievance going through the 18th century to 19th century is this guy. Who? That's William Marbury. You maybe never saw what he looked like. Um, this guy flunked CIFPRO 101. He filed in the wrong court. If he had a problem with mandamus, he should have went to the trial court, got his writ, and then went upstairs to the Supreme Court for an appeal. But no, he filed in the wrong jurisdiction and he lost. So rule number one, file in the correct court. Don't be like William Marbury. But then we get to perhaps my biggest list of grievances, even more than John Roberts, um, John Marshall. Yes, John Marshall, the person being canceled every five seconds, by every school. Um, where do I start? I think John Marshall is probably the most overrated justice of all time. Really, I, I truly do. I don't think he deserves all the credit he gets. In fact, schools should take his name off the walls. I don't think he deserves it. Why is a law school in Chicago even named after John Marshall? I don't know. Cleveland, I have no idea. Atlanta, who knows? Okay. So his first big mistake, he didn't deliver Marbury's commission on time. He missed it. It was his job to deliver it, and he didn't do it. He should have recused in Marbury versus Madison. He didn't. No, John Marshall did not invent judicial review. That never happened. It's a myth. Uh, his opinion, McCulloch v. Maryland, he ripped off Hamilton's bank opinion. Um, he mostly got the Commerce Clause right in Gibbons v. Ogden, but people have misread it over the years. His one opinion I like is actually Byron v. Baltimore. 
absolutely right. Takings clause does not limit state power. And he recognized what a regulatory taking might be back in 1820-something. Okay. Who's next? Joseph Story. I actually won the Joseph Story Award from FedSoc. I am going to criticize him because I have a problem with you people. Um, Joseph Story wrote the majority opinion in Prigg versus Pennsylvania. Now, this was a case with the Fugitive Slave Act, the dreadful law. But Story's opinion should be criticized for a different reason. It adopted a very broad view of federal power, one that gave the federal government almost unlimited power, even when we're not tying ourselves to Article 1, Section 8. The Fugitive Slave Clause does not give Congress the power to enact this law. Salmon Chase was right. Next up, of course, Chief Justice Roger Taney. Um, the Dred Scott decision is probably one of the worst cases ever, if not the worst, probably takes, probably takes the worst in Supreme Court history. Chief Justice Taney recognized a new constitutional right based on substantive due process in order to resolve a controversial social debate by placing it beyond the power elected branches. Hmm, sound familiar? In, in Casey, Justice Scalia directly equated Roe and Dred Scott. Next up, no one knows this guy. I do. Samuel Miller. He wrote the majority opinion in the slaughterhouse cases. These were decided. These were decided um, after the civil after the Fourteenth Amendment was ratified, and the court basically held the privileges or immunities clause really doesn't mean anything. It applies to a very narrow set of constitutional rights. Virtually all scholars, sorry, Kurt, agree that Slaughterhouse was wrongly decided um, in that camp. Next up, another justice no one knows about, Justice Joseph Bradley, who? He wrote majority opinion in Hans versus Louisiana. I'm getting very nerdy now. This opinion read the 11th Amendment to say things it doesn't actually say. It said, well, it says suing a citizen of another state, but you can sue your own state. No, no big deal, potato, potato. Um, this opinion created so much difficulty. If you don't like SB8, go after Hans, right? This is where a lot of the difficulty starts. Okay, Ollie, Ollie, Ollie. Um, Oliver Wendell Holmes was a great American. He served in the Civil War, injured several times. Um, patriot, lousy judge, overrated too. Uh, after John Marshall, the most overrated justice in Supreme Court history. Um, we start, of course, perhaps with this Lochner dissent. Now, I think Lochner is actually a closer case than many libertarians do. I think probably Harlan got it right, although I can be persuaded that maybe Peckham got it right. But the Holmes dissent was actually quite wrong. And he was the only one who, no one joined him. He was all by himself. And what Holmes said is, well, the courts have no role whatsoever to assess the validity of these types of laws. We simply defer. Um, Holmes once wrote to a friend, uh, if the people want to go to hell, I'll help them get there, right? He truly believed in unadulterated restraint, uh, the Thayerian flavor. Uh, but that restraint you may like in Lochner. But then we get to Buckley Bell, which is one of the most uh, hard to read, short opinion, one of the toughest opinions to read in the entire Supreme Court canon. Holmes upheld a mandatory sterilization order against Carrie Buck. He wrote, three generations of imbeciles are enough. Ideas, Carrie was an imbecile, 
Carrie's mom was an imbecile. Carrie's daughter was an imbecile. That's enough. They want to go to hell. I'll help them get there. And so he did. Next up, who is this? Justice Owen Roberts, yes, who cast the swing vote in West Coast Hotel versus Parrish. Now, there was no switch in time at Save Nine. That's kind of a myth. It never actually happened. But West Coast Hotel signaled the court would no longer scrutinize economic regulation. So my plea to everyone, no more suitors and no more Justice Roberts's. We went over two with Roberts's. We have enough of them. No more Roberts. Who's this? Harlan Fisk Stone, who is the Chief Justice. He wrote the majority opinion in U.S. versus Caroline products. Yes, the famous footnote four. Now, real problem with footnote four, real grievances. It split constitutional rights in half. There were the favored rights and the unfavored rights. Um, it was a mistake. In fact, I agree with my colleague Randy Barnett. This is a disregard of the Ninth Amendment. Um, to this day, footnote four is kind of cited, kind of not, but this was really the beginning of when the court said, we're going to just put these other rights we don't like on the side of the table. Who's next? Robert Jackson? What's my grievance with Robert Jackson? He prosecuted Nazis. Well, Wicker v. Filburn, another really bad decision. Uh, a farmer was growing wheat on his own farm, wasn't selling it. By the way, he probably was. He was almost certainly lying. Right. The amount of wheat Philbrim was growing. He was almost certainly selling it on the market, but we'll, we'll just pretend that didn't happen. Philbrim was keeping the wheat on his farm and it never left state lines, never left his farm. How can Congress regulate locally grown wheat? Justice Jackson said, well, we, we have some of the aggregation principle that if we add together all the local wheat that's grown, and we calculate the substantial effect from this locally grown wheat in the aggregate, boom. Regulation of locally grown wheat. This decision blew up the scope of federal powers. So Jackson, you were good in Youngstown, other cases, Korematsu, but Wickard, no. Who's this? William Brennan. I could do an entire hour on Brennan. Peter gave another hour. I'll just do Brennan for an hour with all his opinions over 30 years. Uh, where do I even begin? Uh, let's start with Cooper versus Aaron, because that's been the news recently. Um, Cooper v. Aaron, which was written by Brennan, all nine signed of it, but Brennan was the lead draftsman. Cooper v. Aaron created the idea of judicial supremacy, the idea that the Supreme Court supreme its interpretations. That doesn't come from the supremacy clause. The idea does not come from the Marbury decision. It comes from Brennan. And this decision is responsible for such a flawed view of the court. Justice Sotomayor, another grievance, accepted Brennan's reading of Marbury. In fact, John Roberts accepted Brennan's reading of Marbury. Go look at Akilah Mars podcast with Ed Whalen. It's a very, very powerful move. Uh, Brennan was wrong on just about everything. Um, so maybe next show, I'll just do an hour on Brennan. Who's this? William O. Douglas. Um, another law professor on the court. Don't always turn out so well. Um, he wrote a decision called Griswold versus Connecticut. This case recognized a right to contraception. It was... I'll just read it to you. Specific guarantees in the Bill of Rights have penumbras formed by emanations from those guarantees that help give life and substance. What? Uh, grievances all around. But even worse, this opinion created an entire body of law known as substantive due process, 
that to this day plagues the court. And a lot of it can be traced back to the Griswold decision. Next up, you know what's next. Justice Blackman, no, not me. I am M-A-N, this, oh, otherwise, mirrored. This guy is, part of the looks, this guy is M-U-N, Justice Harry Blackman. Here with majority opinion in ah, Roe v. Wade. Um, we know about this because his papers were released and Justice Roberts apparently reads them to understand how Roe should be interpreted, which is nonsense. Um, Roe decided that there'll be a, a trimester framework, certain types of abortions can't be regulated. Um, Justice White wrote in dissent, this was an exercise of raw judicial power. I agree. And I hope come June, we will not talk about Justice Blackman anymore because his opinion will be overruled, but we'll see. Uh, this guy, um, Lewis Powell, uh, many of you read in con law a case called Baki versus um, uh, University of California. Uh, this was an early challenge to affirmative action. Uh, the court wrote a very fractured opinion. And Justice Powell wrote the major uh, controlling-ish opinion where he said, well, you can't use race for quotas, but you can use race to uh, achieve certain educational benefits from diversity. This standard never made a terribly lot of sense, and the court's been fighting with it for decades. In the Grutter case in 2003, they sort of reaffirmed Justice Powell. Justice Kennedy reaffirmed it again in the uh, Abigail Fisher case. Um, but now we have the Harvard case and the UNC cases. And we said, we might say farewell to Justice Blackman. We will say farewell to Justice Powell as well. Get all these 70s justices out of the way and uh, move on to the, the Boomer justices. Okay, Boomer. All right. Next up, Chief Justice Rehnquist. Now, again, Rehnquist, I'm pretty happy with him. But one opinion, he got it very wrong, which is Morrison against Olson. Yes, the independent counsel is unconstitutional. This wolf came as a wolf. And Justice Scalia was right. But Scalia was wrong about something else. Employment division versus Smith. The idea that you review free exercise claims with rational basis standard. Um, even Homer nods, our namesake, our patron saint, uh, was fallible. If it was a devil's advocate for him, he would have failed on, uh, uh, <laughs> on the Smith case. And you know, maybe one of his law clerks might realize soon enough that Smith was wrong, Amy wherever you are. Let's keep going forward. I mentioned these three before, I'll mention again. O'Connor, Kennedy, Souter, Casey. The joint opinion said, oh, no, no, we're not a ruling row. We're just reaffirming and making entirely a new test. Um, no one believes it, but no one really cares because abortion won. Again, Roe might be gone soon. I hope Casey's gone soon too. They'll be relegated to a little note case in the, uh, in the, in the textbook, move on with their lives. Let's keep going. Justice John Paul Stevens, um, he actually passed away in the last year. Uh, he was in it well into his 90s, uh, lived an amazing life. Um, he claims to have been at the game where Babe Ruth called the home run at Wrigley Field. A lot of people did, but you know, who knows? Uh, but Stevens are a lot of really bad opinions. I'll pick just two that really irked me, both from 2005. Gonzalez versus Rach and Kilo Vesey of New London. In Rach, the court allowed regulation of locally grown marijuana. My colleague, Randy Burnett, did not get more than three votes. Um, we need five to win. And Kilo v. New London, the court upheld the use of eminent domain for economic development. Two dreadful decisions. 2005 was a very bad year. But also, that was also a turning point for the court because this was the court from basically 1990, 
2004 till 2005 after Breyer joined. He was the junior justice for a decade. That never happened before. But Chief Justice Roberts replaces Justice Rehnquist. Eh, downgrade. And then a couple months later, Justice Samuel Alito replaces Justice O'Connor. Upgrade. Then Justice Sotomayor replaces Justice Souter. Downgrade. Justice Kagan replaces Justice Stevens. Upgrade. More recently, Justice Gorsuch replaces Justice Scalia. Sorry, downgrade. Um, Scalia's at a high bar. I like Gorsuch, but, but you know, if you're replacing the giant, you don't fill those shoes right away. Justice Kavanaugh replaced Justice Kennedy. Upgrade, although Kennedy set a very low bar. And more recently, Justice Ginsburg was replaced by Justice Barrett. Upgrade. That's an easy one. Now let's bring more to the modern sense. Um, we live in a very unusual time where court packing is back in the news that this is what people actually want to do. Uh, President Biden was dogged on the campaign show. Will you pack the courts? Will you pack the courts? So he said, I'll tell you what, I'll, I will uh, appoint a committee, a commission to study the issue. And once he did this, like, okay, this may be a waste of time. And indeed it was, but not in the way you think. Um, this was one of the meetings of this presidential commission. There were like 50 law professors on Zoom. It felt like an episode of the Brady Bunch on acid. Um, you know, this was not something anyone would think would be productive. And its final work product was this 400 page doorstop that I, I didn't read, um, that doesn't actually make recommendations. It says, well, here are things we think, and here are some pros and cons, blah. And we've already forgotten about it. Um, I think court packing is thankfully off the table for now. Um, Senator Manchin, who apparently is the real president, uh, uh, won't favor abolishing the filibuster, so we don't have to worry about it. But at some point in the future, we may actually see a movement to add three, five, seven justices. Uh, we'll have 100 members of the Supreme Court. Maybe I'll be a justice. Uh, maybe all you will be. You know, everyone in this Zoom call will be a justice. Tap with it. Join me on the court. Um, but I think the actual most potent impact of this sort of progressive attack on the court has been about the shadow dossier. I did it, Peter Pan, the shadow docket. Um, the shadow docket was first identified by Will Bode, uh, my friend at Chicago, and people didn't really care. It wasn't a big deal until he got to Trump. And a lot of judges started issuing rulings against the Trump administration. Trump started going to the Supreme Court on a fairly regular basis. Sometimes he got relief, sometimes he didn't, but he got it often. And people said, oh my God, we can have this emergency ruling, blah, 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 blah. Yeah, okay. Um, now, President Biden doesn't go to the Supreme Court very often because you know he's probably gonna lose. Um, and when he does, it's a riskier venture. But I think this criticism of the shadow doc has actually paid dividends. Um, a few months ago, or actually about a month ago, there was a case from Maine involving a vaccine mandate for Maine. Uh, the court denied relief. The court's three most conservative members, Thomas, Alito, and Gorsuch would have granted relief. Barrett and Kavanaugh did not. They wrote a concurrence. And Justice Barrett said, well, we shouldn't be so quick to give relief on the shadow docket. She said, we should only give relief where we would otherwise grant certiorari. Let me tell you something. Certiorari is a very hard standard to satisfy. The court grants about 70 cases a year. Most of them are risky cases, which no one cares about. But the court drags its feet. 
and drag dispute because of Kavanaugh and Barrett. That's, that's the ironic part. They're the reasons why we're not granting more cases and they decide what certiorari is worthy, right? When you're the fourth vote and you decide what's cert worthy, don't hide behind saying it's not cert worthy because you don't, you don't want to do the case. I think it's, it's misleading to actually say this when you're the fourth vote. Um, but still, Kavanaugh and Barrett, I think, cut the fuse in the shadow docket. Um, I think they felt burned after the Roman Catholic Diocese case and the uh, landlord eviction case. And I think they're not going to grant relief as much more. And we're seeing this even today. Uh, the Sixth Circuit, um, in a divided opinion, declined to stay the uh, vaccine mandate. In other words, they lifted the stay from the Fifth Circuit. The parties went to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court should have granted an administrative stay and said, okay, we'll grant the stay for a few weeks to hear it. Instead, they put it on what I call the rocket docket. By the way, if you're in rocket docket, that's mine. People don't give me credit, but, but that's fine. I'm used to it. Um, the court put it on the rocket docket. They'll hear the case on January 7th, which is soon, but not quite soon enough because the mandate goes into effect on January 10th. Are we really going to get a ruling on January 8th? How many businesses will have to take action to conform with this policy before it goes into effect? So the upshot of this shadow docket nonsense is I think the court has signaled, okay, you guys are right, the criticism's valid. Uh, we're just not gonna decide cases. Super urgently, we'll put on the rocket docket. Okay, but in some cases you need to move more quickly. All right. Now comes perhaps the most fun part of the evening, the feats of strength. Now I should warn you, I've been tested. I was protested at the CUNY Law School in New York. They didn't quite pin me, but they perhaps could have. There was almost 50 against one, but I welcome now comments challenges and the grievances you have with me, as I'm sure there are many. Thank you all so much. All right, who do we have? Hands up, okay. All right, Lowell, go ahead. Hi, Josh, yes. great to see you again. Yep. I'm sure I speak for many other people when I wanna say that I have a grievance with your hair right now. <laughs> yes, I figured you would. Uh, it, it's just not judicial. And I, I think that given that you are a, a prominent face representing uh, many on the right, that you should um, be a, uh, you, you should essentially represent your constituency a little better than your current haircut does. Okay. I, I'll tell you, I, I, I appreciate it a little. I actually have come to like it. Um, and the reason may not be obvious um, it's disarming. When people who don't know me see it, they think, oh, wow, this guy is kind of cool, whatever. And then, then I hit him really hard. And so it actually gives me an element of surprise. But I, I hear you. I hear you. Thank you, Lowell. All right, what other questions and grievances you have with me? I'm sure there are many. If, if Brett Kavanaugh's in the line, we can talk later. Peter, grievances? <laughs> no one's willing to grieve against me. Okay. Oh, my code for 100 cases book didn't work. I'm sorry. If you email me, I'll take care of it. That's my apology. That's beyond my pay grade, but I'll take care of it. All right. Tabitha, any grievances from you? Um, let me think, Professor Blackman.
Okay, so here's a question. Yes. If you could create your uh, ideal nomination list for the Supreme Court. Ooh. Maybe your top five. Okay. Um, yeah, I can probably do that. Uh, and in no particular order, I'm not ranking. I'll just go uh, by circuit. All right. From the second circuit, uh, I'm just skipping the first. I don't even know any of the judges there. It's, it's just, I can't, I don't think anyone, I don't think any of a single judge in uh, Barron, maybe. Anyway, second circuit, uh, I'll just pick the top from each circuit. Steve Menashe, Michael Park might be good. In the third circuit, still a fan of Tom Hardiman, I like Paul Mady. Uh, fourth circuit, I like Richardson. Maybe he's got some good opinions. Fifth circuit, um, oh, Wealth of Riches. So I think you have uh, Jim Ho, Andy Oldham, Kyle Duncan. Hell, I put Edith Jones, I don't care, I don't care how old she is. <laughs> I would still put her on the Supreme Court. She's 100 years old, she'll be in the Supreme Court tomorrow if I was in charge. Um, <laughs> uh, Sixth circuit also, Wealth of Riches. Um, I, you have uh, Par. you have John Bush. Um, uh, you have so many go to the Sixth Circuit. Uh, seventh Circuit, I don't really know the new ones. Um, I'm not sure of the new ones. Uh, eighth Circuit, I like I, uh, David Strass is wonderful. Um, ninth Circuit, Pat Bumate, Lawrence Van Dyke. Um, I'm sure I'm forgetting some. It's such a big circuit. Uh, tenth Circuit, I don't know any. Um, I can't think. Uh, Allison Eyde, okay. I'm trying to get the Tenth Circuit. Eleventh Circuit, I would still let Bill Pry. I don't care how old he is. Uh, he's still fascinating. He's forty somethings. Um, uh, Newsom's actually pretty sharp. I think Lisa Branch would be great. Uh, there's no twelfth circuit. Uh, DC, um, Greg Katzis. Uh, can't go wrong. Naomi Rao would be good. Um, I think I just named a lot more judges, but I'll just give you my my metrics. Um, I read a lot of opinions by appellate judges very carefully, and. Um, well, what I like to see um, is what I call judicial courage. It's something that I've been thinking about. It's where you sort of say things that you think are right, but you know will be unpopular and you don't care. You don't sort of cow yourself to try to curry favor. And the names I gave, I think for the most part, um, exhibit that sort of courage, right? It's really easy to be a Chevron. I'm sorry, it's really easy to be an originalist on like Chevron deference and um, you know, be an originalist on you know, qualified immunity because it's a lot of virtue signaling, right? It's a lot of like, wow, you know, who cares, right? Uh, but on sort of social issues, the ability to sort of stick your neck out um, matters a lot more. And I think that should be worthwhile to pick for Supreme Court justices. But good question. I think I named far more than five. I blew your list up. But those are, those are people who, would, who I'd pick. Sorry, I don't mean disrespect to the first circuit. I just, I just don't know their names. I just, it's, it's like five judges, I think. And Souter, like it's regular sitting. So I don't know. Great. Thank uh, you. Okay. Uh, don't you agree that little judges in Hawaii and California elsewhere should decisions following up judge shopping back to the cycle of presence of the United States? Uh, I think the question is about nationwide injunction. So look, I, I don't take a super hard position on the nationwide injunctions. Um, my friend Sam Bright, Notre Dame, does. He will fight to the earth the idea of a nationwide injunction. Um, what, what bothers me, though, is people don't understand how courts work, that you don't strike down laws, you, you enjoin individuals. And this is something we saw a lot with SBA cases. You cannot enjoin a law. 
stop it. If your professor says enjoin a law, just tell me it's wrong, right? That's not how it works. You enjoin a person. As long as there's actually a person enforcing the law, I can go along with them because government officials act outside of the scope of one state, right? If I'm the secretary of state, I'm not just working in DC. I go nationwide or even worldwide. Um, but a lot of these suits don't even reflect the fact that you can limit relief to the plaintiff states without burdening anyone else. Um, so I, I don't know that you have to strike down nationwide injunctions. Maybe Congress can intervene. I don't have a strong opinion. But I think that you need to have um, a recognition that judges enjoin people, not parties. Oh, did I miss Earl Warren? You know what? I skipped Warren. I didn't put it in my slide. That was a mistake. Uh, grievance is well stated. I should put Earl Warren on there. My goodness. If you read some of the Warren court decisions, they're stunning in their arrogance. They overrule cases in a footnote where no one asked to overrule them, right? In one case, one of the Crimpro cases, we overrule this case. No one asked us to. We pointed an amicus. He didn't ask us to, but we're going to do it anyway. It's insane, right? It's insane. Okay. Uh, Catherine asks, my perspective on DC statehood. Um, I think it's actually a closer issue than, than perhaps some conservatives like. The part that I think is actually most problematic um, is the amendment that gave DC electoral votes. Because you basically have like a few people living on the mall in DC who would have their electoral college votes, which is insane. I think you would need to repeal that amendment before you even consider DC statehood's policy matter. Um, I'm on the fence. I think it's, it's a closer issue, but, I, but uh, Roger Pilon and Cato has put up some good stuff. I just, I don't have a strong opinion. All right. What other questions we have? More grievances. I have lots of grievances. Am I against televising court sessions? I am because of Justice Sotomayor. I don't think the lawyers would grandstand. I think the justice would, and, and her exhibit, her, her behavior in the um, abortion case is proof that this may be beyond any doubt. She was talking not to the lawyers, but to the, to the press. And I think that's dangerous. Um, you know, and the audio is fine. I think the audio is a good enough substitute. You don't really need to see them. Um, I think the audio is actually a pretty good compromise. I would even favor audio with the cameras facing the lawyers and not the justices. I would actually favor that. To keep to, you know to keep the justice from, from being superstars. I mean that that's one of the reasons why I oppose cameras. Um, the better question is if Congress re uh, legislate that over this uh, justice veto. Uh, I think they probably could, but it wouldn't be a good idea. Oh boy, someone asked, is there a right to abortion under the 13th Amendment? See the Andrew Kaufman paper. Oh boy. Right, so the 13th Amendment, in case you, you don't have your constitution in front of you, prohibits slavery or involuntary servitude. And just focus on the text for a minute, slavery or involuntary servitude. That suggests that involuntary servitude is not the same thing as slavery, otherwise the text is redundant. So the question is, what does involuntary servitude mean? And there's an argument on the left, which has been around for a long time, that requiring a woman to carry a child to term is a form of involuntary servitude. Um, I've actually, I'm not changing the topic, but there was actually a lawsuit filed against, I think it was SeaWorld, arguing that keeping Shamu in captivity was also a violation of the 13th Amendment. So the short answer is the 13th Amendment doesn't have much judicial teeth. Um, I think lawyers for smart make very creative arguments. But the idea that in, in abolishing slavery, Abraham Lincoln, right, the, the, the great emancipator really meant to guarantee right to abortion. Right? That's what that really was going on. It's just, 
I think it's it's you know it's a cute argument, but it doesn't just doesn't carry much weight in my book. Um, yeah, sorry. Um, I also don't agree with the argument the Fourteenth Amendment requires a ban on abortion. This is the Robbie George John Finnis argument. Uh, I think Kavanaugh is right about one thing. The Constitution is neutral on abortion. Neutral, neutral, neutral. I said a hundred times. I think Kavanaugh's right. All right, question. Um, oh, this is a long question about DC statehood. I'll read that one later. So too, too long to read. All right, what other questions? Professor Blackman, what, what about are your um, thoughts or grievances on Chevron and the deference doctrine? I mean, look, um, I know Chevron gets people really agitated, but just keep in mind, look at the DC circuit right now, right? Look who's on it. Do you really want them making policy for every administration? Is that really what you want? I mean, I, I, I get people are worked up at Chevron, which is complete abdication. I get that. But just, just be careful what you wish for, right? Um, with the current DC circuit, another nomination was made today to a judge in South Carolina I've never, I've never heard of. But, you know, the, the, just be careful what you wish for. Um, I think Thomas was a fair point that people are actually being deprived of due process when the courts simply roll over and keel over when the government makes an assertion. Uh, where I think Chevron should be tightened up is that what ambiguous actually means. This is actually, Kavanaugh made this point well uh, before he came on the Supreme Court. You know, I'm with Kavanaugh again, look at this. Well, it's, it's, a, it's a festivist miracle. Um, <laughs> um, things that are ambiguous need to really be ambiguous. And I think various tools of statutory interpretation can be used to sort of ferret out ambiguity. And then you don't really need to go to Chevron at all. Now, more important though is the Chevron, she Chevron step zero, the so-called major question doctrine, that's made a lot of play. I think a lot of questions is just such a big deal. Think of the vaccine mandate, my goodness. Uh, uh, OSHA passed by President Nixon to regulate workplace safety lets the feds require vaccines or testing for 100 million Americans. Give me a break, that's not, that's not even the scope of the statute. I don't care what ambiguous means. So I think, I think Chevron step zero is where you, where you get a lot more juice. Uh, we have a question from Tom Palmer on the Second Amendment. Of course, Tom was one of the original litigants in the Heller case from back uh, nearly a decade ago. Um, I'm worried about the Second Amendment. Um, why am I worried? Because we have abortion. Oh, you're not that Tom Palmer. I'm sorry. I thought you were. Well, he, he's a hero as well. So a different Tom Palmer, but, but uh, he's, a, uh, he's a good guy. Um, I worry about the Second Amendment case because... Um, we have abortion. And I think it might be hard for the court, at least a couple members, to simultaneously say, no, Mississippi, I'm sorry, yes, Mississippi can regulate abortion, but no, New York, you, you, you can't regulate guns. And that is an optical problem, an optical illusion, if you will, but it's an optical problem, optics. So it's possible the court rules for the conservatives on, on abortion, but, but sort of punts on guns. Uh, maybe they say, well, the Second Circuit applied the wrong standard. Go back and think about it again. We'll grant cert in 2030, right? When, you know, uh, you know, there's, there's 45 members of the court and, you know, it won't even matter anymore. So that, that's my worry. Um, you know, I, the Second Amendment was, the history here is a little bit tough because New York involves concealed carry. Um, uh, but the, um, uh, historically, it was about open carry. So I think it's a harder issue. Okay, uh, Jared, you want to ask a question? Uh, yeah, if this is working, um, I, 
someone uh, I was asked to uh, comment on my DC thing, but uh, one of the reasons that DC was made a federal district is so that no governor could hold the seat of federal power hostage. Mm. And that's why the DC National Guard answers directly to the president. Um, during the whole Trump uh, riot in front of the church photo op thing, uh, Mayor Muriel Bowser held a press conference and said that DC should be a state so that she could deprive the president of the use of DC National Guard. Um, which was a comment, the gravity of which seemed lost upon uh, everyone. That she, she actually made the argument for exactly why it shouldn't without touching on it. But that was less a question than a comment. So I'll ask a grievance. Um, I was reading one of the Federalist Papers um, and it was, it was one of the, uh, and it might've been Jefferson himself, but had said when they wrote the general welfare clause, what they were really thinking about was for the federal government to have the power to pay back debt from the Revolutionary War. And essentially, had it not been an afterthought or a drafting error, had they been more specific about what they meant when they wrote that, you know, how would that affect the powers of the federal government? You know, I, I've read all the federals. I don't remember that, that paper, uh, but I appreciate the question. Um, you know, and, and maybe I'll, I'll answer two birds with one stone, original intent versus original meaning. Um, the drafting history of the Constitution is fascinating. Um, it's, you know, what could have been, uh, but it wasn't, and they didn't pick it. So how much weight do we put on unenacted provisions? Um, we, saw, we see this a lot also in the Establishment Clause and the Second Amendment, all these precursors, all these draft versions of the, of the text that were not adopted. Um, you know, if you favor original public meaning, it's marginally useful to know what came before, but what really matters is what was picked. And we don't know why they pick one versus the other. So I'm somewhat hesitant to read too much into unenacted provisions. Um, but I do think it's, it, it does provide food for thought over how, what could have been. I'll give you a recommendation. Uh, Dean Trainer at the Georgetown Law School wrote a new paper on Gouverneur Morris, who was a influential but underappreciated framer who did a lot of revisions. The trainer calls him the, was it the dishonest scrivener, that he would make changes that were not in good faith. Um, but, but we have what we have. The Constitution is here. You know, I have my copy right here, my Cato Constitution. It sits on my desk always. And that's what we're dealing with. And if you look over my shoulder, there's the Declaration and there's the Constitution, which and actually, if you know the tell, I'm exactly halfway between the two pictures. This is how I center myself whenever I'm on TV. See, Tabitha smile like she knows. Any other questions? All right. Well, I wish all of you a blessed Festivus. Have a wonderful new, you have a question? Go ahead, Tabitha. Oh, sorry. I was going to say, if since obviously no one has been able to see you, uh, maybe before we conclude, do you have a list of um, maybe anti-grievances that you would, you could review before you sign off? Anti-grievances? Those are things I'm happy about. Well, um, <laughs> yeah. I'm very happy to return to class. I actually miss teaching. I know you don't believe me, but I do miss teaching. I miss students. Um, God willing, we're in person. I hope this cocktail Omicron doesn't keep us out. Some schools are shutting down, um, but we'll see what happens there. Um, I'm grateful we don't have to worry about Justice Kennedy anymore. I mean, as much as I, as much as I complain about Justice Kavanaugh, I am so thankful. I will never again have to read another Kennedy opinion. There are no more. They, they've all been written. I'll have to read them ever again. There's nothing new I have to edit. Um, 
Uh, I'm truly grateful for that. I would take Suter over Kenny in a heartbeat because Suter was kind of like, you know, this New England dude. Kenny was just dreadful. Ah, uh, Nebby, question. But yeah, let me allow you to speak. If I said your name wrong, I apologize. Hello? Can you yes, hear me, Mr. Rockman? Yeah, go ahead. Quick question. So, because I've read a lot of your pieces on ball, like how con with respect to, I guess, originalism and overruling a row, I guess, what's your confidence level that will be a make it, make it or break it moment for, I guess, originalism? Well, I, I don't, yeah, it's a good question. I, I think people might have misunderstood what I wrote. I don't think it's a make or break moment for originalism. I think it's a make or break moment for the conservative legal movement which is responsible for pushing originalism forward, right? The fear of originalism will survive, right? Law professors will keep talking about it, but the extent to which politicians and politicals wrap themselves in the umbrella of originalism will change and that matters for nominations. So then instead of appointing, you know, a principled originalist, you appoint a, oh God, I'm gonna say it, Vermeulean, common good, constitutionalist, Supreme Court justice. I mean, imagine, you know, Sonia Sotomayor, but a conservative, right? like that, right? You know, screw Gorsuch, screw Kavanaugh, screw Barrett, we'll just appoint like, you know, Josh Hawley to the Supreme Court, right? He's about my age, you know, he's, <laughs> he'll serve for 50 years and, and there will be no surprises. Um, right, I mean, that's basically what you're asking for. So if the Dobbs case doesn't come out the right way, then I fear for our movement. Originals will be fine. Right. We'll keep writing books and articles on reads. It's fine. But the movement itself will take a uh, will take a shot. And I don't know quite what that shot looks like. Thank you. Thank you for the question. Fantastic. Well, um, I think, I think with that, yep. <laughs> All right. I think with that, we'll conclude. Um, All right. A blessed festivist, everyone. A happy new year. A Merry Christmas. A happy whatever else you're celebrating. This was fun. Uh, if you have any other questions, you can email me and send me grievances. I get lots of grievances by uh, by email. I don't. I read them all. I don't always reply. But thank you all so much. Thank you so much, Professor. Signing off. Thank you.